This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for May 19th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm joined by Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Today, we also have with us two of our colleagues, Darren Teichman, Deputy Editor, and Jeff Drazen, former Editor-in-Chief, current NEJM Group Editor, and soon to be Editor-in-Chief of a new journal, NEJM Evidence. While the world's been gripped by the COVID-19 epidemic, research in other areas of medicine has continued. Today, we'd like to look at progress in one of those areas, pulmonary and critical care medicine. But first, let's talk about a recent COVID-related story that we published. One of the early tragic consequences of the COVID-19 epidemic was its impact on nursing home residents. Some of the earliest outbreaks in the country were in these facilities, and they were associated with high mortality rates. To try to combat this, most nursing homes instituted infection control measures that meant that patients were isolated from their friends and families for long periods. And then residents and staff of nursing homes were among the first targeted for vaccination. So today we published an early indicator of real-world effectiveness of those vaccines. What did we learn? Steve, this study was performed in a nursing home chain that cares for people across 21 states. So there were a range of areas with a range of different rates of disease. They compared people who'd received either one or two doses of the mRNA vaccines by mid-February with those who had not been vaccinated by the end of March. There wasn't routine surveillance, but when there was a known outbreak or a known exposure, residents were tested for SARS-CoV-2 infection every three to seven days, regardless of symptoms. Thus, they were able to capture some asymptomatic infections along with identifying symptomatic patients. The sample included more than 18,000 residents who were vaccinated and almost 4,000 who weren't. It's impossible to calculate the vaccine effectiveness as the number of cases was low and fell over time, even among the unvaccinated group, as the rate nationwide had fallen. Still, the rate of infection was relatively low and much lower among those who received two doses of vaccine than among those who didn't. The majority of infections were asymptomatic in both vaccine recipients and in the unvaccinated. It's a bit difficult to have a clear takeaway message from this. The unvaccinated group is a difficult comparator because we don't know why they didn't receive the vaccine. However, it does appear that two doses of vaccine were considerably better than a single dose. And this suggests that there are useful vaccine responses even in this elderly group with a high rate of comorbidities. I agree, Eric. It's difficult to fully understand what we learn from real-world data. However, these data, I think, are pretty compelling on several fronts. The number of cases decreased dramatically over the month the vaccine was deployed in these institutions with 18,000 high-risk residents. Decreased both in those who are vaccinated and those who were not, suggesting that this decreased transmission within the institution as well as within the individuals who were vaccinated. The concept of herd immunity or how we protect each other by not being vectors of infection, I think these data strongly support. They also point out that a large number of individuals who were infected having PCR-positive swabs, were asymptomatic, highlighting that we don't know when we are infected as individuals and therefore can infect others. All the more reason to be vaccinated and to make sure that you continue to use proper precautions 
not only to protect yourself, but to protect others. This is a bigger issue indoors than outdoors. But I think these data continue to reinforce the prevailing understanding of how this virus is spread and the benefits of our countermeasures, particularly vaccine deployment. You bring up another important point there, Lindsay. Not only are these people at high risk of severe infection because of their status, but these are closed or closed dish communities where during this time, for the most part, there were no visitors allowed. And therefore, for the most part, residents only encountered other residents or the staff. Now, the staff were going in and out, so it wasn't completely closed. However, this gives you some idea of transmission within the facility because all transmission to residents occurred within the facility. And in that respect, it offers an encouraging message. Hopefully, this will encourage vaccine uptake to increase because that is very much needed for us to really stop transmission, which we're currently witnessing, but is fragile if we let down our guard and don't stay vigilant in the necessary measures to stop viral amplification and transmission and vaccines and physical distancing, if you are not vaccinated or protected, needs to really be thought about in all our communities. Let's turn to a recent critical care study that, while it wasn't about COVID-19 patients, it's certainly relevant for anyone who needs ICU-level care. One of the mainstays of supportive care in the ICU is supplementary oxygen, but oxygen is a double-edged sword. High inspired oxygen tensions can be toxic. Low oxygen tensions in the blood can be lethal. So the appropriate amount of oxygen to use in the ICU has been a subject of several studies in the past. What did we know before the current study? Steve, as you know, we don't know the optimal oxygen target for treating patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. Available evidence is often conflicting of variable quality, and accordingly, clinical practice guidelines do not provide firm recommendations. A recent systematic review and meta-analysis concluded that lower oxygen targets were preferable in acutely ill patients but two subsequently published randomized trials came to rather different conclusions. One was stopped prematurely because of a higher frequency of intestinal ischemia and a higher 90-day mortality in the lower oxygenation group. By contrast, the other large multicenter trial found no difference between higher or lower oxygenation targets in the number of ventilator-free days or mortality at 28 days. So, we still don't know the best oxygen target to use for our patients. And what then do we learn from the new study that we've published? This was a multi-center, multinational trial that tested whether a lower oxygenation target was superior to a higher target. 2,928 patients admitted to either a medical or surgical ICU with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure and who were receiving at least 10 liters of supplemental oxygen per minute in an open system, or an inspired oxygen concentration of at least 50% with either non-invasive or invasive mechanical ventilation, were randomized to a lower oxygenation target, an arterial partial pressure of 60 millimeters mercury, or a higher target of 90 millimeters mercury. The median age of the patients was 70, and a little more than half were intubated at the time of randomization. 13% had ARDS at enrollment and 57% had pneumonia. Other causes of acute respiratory failure in this group 
included cardiac arrest, myocardial infarction, stroke, intestinal ischemia, and trauma. The experiment worked in that there was separation in the oxygenation achieved between the groups. But despite that, at 90 days, there was no difference in the primary endpoint of mortality. 42.9% of the patients in the lower oxygenation group had died and 42.4% in the higher oxygenation group. There was also no difference in the percentage of patients alive and without life support at 90 days or in the occurrence of serious adverse events. The authors conclude that among adult patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure in the ICU, a lower oxygenation target did not result in lower mortality at 90 days. So it's important to understand these trials are really hard to do. And it's even harder to try to target a oxygen saturation in clinical practice. Patient position, patient effort, changing disease, worsening or improving lung disease, all contribute to making hitting a target difficult. And since SpO2, the oxygen saturation from pulse oximetry, is a moving target, and the movement's difficult to predict, it's very hard to say, I'm going to set this and have it hit. It's not like using cruise control in a car. In fact, what we found in this study was that for the high target of 90 millimeters of mercury, the high group achieved that target of 90.3. But the low target, which was 60 millimeters of mercury, the achieved level was 70.8. And I think this reflects the fact that ICU physicians don't like to see really low oxygen saturations. So they really didn't get what they asked for. And that's important because of the shape of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, but they did as good a job as anyone could expect. So in places where oxygen isn't a precious commodity, it makes sense for the ICU committee to target oxygen saturation values in the 91 to 93% range. I think we have reason to believe that higher oxygen saturations don't have a strong beneficial effect perhaps except in the setting of myocardial infarction, and that there's reason to believe that occasional oxygen saturations below 85% that will occur when you're using lower targets could have a negative impact. And that's the thing that we're all concerned about. The editorialist on this article, who was the lead author on one of the oxygen trials that Dr. Tichman just went over, and that where the trial was done in Australia and New Zealand, called for a larger trial so that the wide confidence interval around all-cause mortality, which was the fact that conservative oxygen therapy could result either an absolute reduction of 2.9 percentage points in mortality or an increase of 4.2 percentage points, they think that they need to do a better study, larger study, so they can answer this question. I think it's going to be really hard to answer because of the difficulty in putting this intervention into play. We'd love to see that. But as a betting man, I think that the likelihood of clinical success is not going to be great. So given all of that, what advice would you give to ICU physicians today? Well, as I said, I think that if we target oxygen saturations in the 91 to 93% range, which is generally easy to achieve, we're probably not going to be hurting people with oxygen toxicity. And if we are hurting people because there's too little oxygen, the data suggests that that's not the case either. So that's where we should go. I think one of the problems in the ICU is that we're all high achievers and we see that oxygen saturation, we know it can go to 99%. And so we try to get it there. 
but we probably shouldn't do that. We should probably live in the 91 to 93% range and wait for these larger trials to be done. But I think that that's where we're going to be after the larger trials are done also. Jeff, I would add that in addition, while we're waiting for those larger trials, as you say, we need to bear in mind that we don't know whether the ideal oxygenation target differs according to the cause of the acute respiratory failure or according to a patient's many underlying medical conditions. In addition, we need to keep in mind that this study that we just talked about cannot assess whether the many different, perhaps subtle differences in the details of how patients are cared for in one ICU versus another might have influenced the outcomes as well. Differences in oxygenation targets might not be equally achieved in one versus another ICU, or even if the oxygenation targets truly do make a difference, these other variations in the approach to ICU care might render the potential effects of one or another oxygenation target more or less important. So just as you say, Jeff, we need larger studies, and fortunately, those are ongoing right now. Let's look at another topic and another study that we've just published. Pulmonary hypertension is an extremely difficult syndrome to manage. It leads to significant impairment and has a very poor prognosis. This can be a particular issue in patients whose pulmonary hypertension results from interstitial lung disease, where before now, some of the treatments that were used have not been shown to have benefit. So what new did we learn from the study we just published? Steve, before discussing this recent trial, let me first emphasize what you just said. Interstitial lung diseases are horrible, progressive conditions that are frequently accompanied by severe impairment of quality of life for the patients and often a high mortality. And available therapies are quite limited. Pulmonary hypertension is often identified in ILD patients, and there its presence is known to portend a really poor prognosis. So more bad news in an already bad situation. Now, it's important to remember that pulmonary hypertension, so in other words, an elevation in the mean pulmonary artery pressure above normal, may be due to many things. In addition to complicating ILD, pulmonary hypertension might occur in other forms of advanced lung disease as a complication of left heart, ventricular, or valvular disease, or following thromboembolism. For only one form of pulmonary hypertension, termed pulmonary arterial hypertension due to an intrinsic vasculopathy of the lung's microvasculature, do we have specific therapies that may improve a patient's exercise capacity and survival? Many of these same drugs have been studied in randomized trials of patients with ILD-associated pulmonary hypertension, but they have unfortunately failed to demonstrate benefit, and in some cases even resulted in potential harm including an increase in mortality. So Darren, tell us about the current study. So this recent study was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial of an inhaled analog of prostacycline called triprostanil, which has been previously shown to be efficacious for the treatment of pulmonary arterial hypertension. The investigators enrolled adult patients with a variety of ILDs who also had pulmonary hypertension, established by right heart catheterization as it should be to be sure that an elevated mean pressure was indeed present and to exclude left heart disease. 
the patients were randomized to receive either inhaled triprostanil or placebo four times a day for 16 weeks. The primary endpoint was a measure of exercise capacity. The difference in six minute walk distance at 16 weeks between the triprostanil and placebo groups. So in other words, the placebo corrected change in six minute walk distance. Secondary outcomes included change in N-terminal pro-B type natriuretic peptide, NTBNP, a marker of cardiac function since pulmonary hypertension causes right heart dysfunction. Clinical worsening indicated by events such as hospitalization, a patient's decline in six minute walk distance or death, and a measure of quality of life. 326 participants with ILD-associated pulmonary hypertension were enrolled. Almost half were women and about 20% identified as Black or African-American. The most common causes of ILD were idiopathic interstitial pneumonia, such as IPF, combined fibrosis and emphysema, and connective tissue disease. At 16 weeks, the placebo-corrected change in six-minute walk distance in the troprostinal group was approximately 31 meters. NT pro BNP levels were reduced by 15% from baseline with troprostinil as compared to an increase of 46% with placebo. Clinical worsening occurred in about 23% of the troprostinil group as compared to 33% with placebo. Although this difference I would note was due predominantly to a worsening six minute walk distance. On the other hand, quality of life assessed by the St. George Respiratory Questionnaire was not different between the groups. The most frequently reported adverse events were cough, headache, dyspnea, dizziness, nausea, fatigue, and diarrhea. There was a fair amount of missing data, and so the authors performed a sensitivity analysis with an alternative means of imputing these missing data, and they found similar results. So the authors conclude that inhaled troprostanil improved exercise capacity compared with placebo in patients with interstitial lung disease-associated pulmonary hypertension. So Darren, this is clearly a positive trial with respect to the primary outcome, which was the six-minute walk distance. In fact, the one thing that's encouraging is that that improved by about 20 meters in the active group, while it fell 10 meters in the control group. So in some treatments in interstitial lung disease, what we find is that we slow the rate of loss, but here there was actually an improvement. So I think that that's good news. But there are lots of things to be concerned about. One is that you mentioned dropouts. There were twice as many dropouts. There were seven out of 40 in the active treatment group and three out of 38 in the placebo group. Now, you said they imputed data, so it probably wasn't driven by that, but that means that the treatment's not all that easy to comply with. And then we have a 16-week follow-up, which is relatively short, with a treatment that you have to give four times a day. Now, It makes sense to do this first study relatively short to see if you have a benefit, and you do. So then the question will be, will these changes persist for longer than 16 weeks of the reported study time? Since the drug doesn't make patients feel any better, and the treatment is so intense, you have to do this aerosolized treatment four times a day, will they continue it? And that's going to be very difficult to know. You know, we've had the same problem in systemic hypertension 
when patients treat themselves for systemic hypertension, they don't necessarily feel better. But we know that when they treat themselves for systemic hypertension, they're getting a mortality benefit and they're making a difference in terms of their other issues, especially stroke. So what we don't know here is, will there be a benefit? Should we be encouraging our patients to stick with this therapy because we know it will make a difference? It doesn't make them feel better. They can walk a little further. It lowers biochemical markers. Will it be something that will really make a difference in these patients' lives? So given these data, what should be the next steps? So these are potentially exciting data, but I agree with you, Jeff, we need to be cautious. Patients with interstitial lung disease and their physicians are often desperate to try something. And we've already seen patients with interstitial lung disease associated pH treated outside of clinical trials with drugs approved for PAH that are not beneficial in this setting. And these drugs are potentially harmful and they're really quite expensive. This new trial suggests that there are some patients with ILD-associated pulmonary hypertension who might benefit from inhaled troprostanil, but we cannot tell precisely who they are from these data. Remember, ILD encompasses a host of conditions of varying etiologies and severity. In addition, we don't know from these data how to identify the severity of pulmonary hypertension or right heart dysfunction to inform who might benefit from such a therapy. And finally, as you said, Jeff, we really don't know what a trial's mean placebo-corrected change in six-minute walk distance of approximately 30 meters is going to mean for an individual patient. Will she or he actually feel better or live longer? So it's exciting to see some potentially good news in this really bad condition but we really need more studies. Finally, let's move to asthma, a disease where there are many available treatments for many different levels of severity. But despite those many treatments, a minority of patients continue to have severe exacerbations despite maximal therapy. Recently, we posed on a new biologic therapy that was tested in this population. So what's the agent and what did we learn? The agent is a human monoclonal antibody that blocks the cytokine thymic stromolymphopoietin, or TSLP. TSLP is an epithelial cell-derived cytokine that's active in multiple signaling pathways involved in type 2 inflammation of the airways, as well as between airway structural cells and immune cells that are not exclusively driven by type 2 inflammation. In patients with asthma, TSLP levels are correlated with airway obstruction, disease severity, and glucocorticoid resistance. Tezepelumab is a monoclonal antibody that binds to TSLP and blocks its interaction with its receptor. This was a multi-center randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial in patients with severe uncontrolled asthma. The patients were receiving medium or high-dose inhaled glucocorticoids and must have had at least two asthma exacerbations in the past year. These were defined as resulting in hospitalization or the use of systemic glucocorticoids for at least three days. The participants were randomized to subcutaneous injections of either tezepelumab or placebo every four weeks for the 52 weeks of the study intervention. 
1,061 participants with a mean age of 50 were randomized. In the end, the annualized rate of asthma exacerbations in the whole trial population was lower in the tezepelumab group, about 0.93 compared with 2.1 in the placebo group. The rate was also lower among participants with a baseline eosinophil count of less than 300 cells per microliter, approximately 1.02 with tezepelumab and 1.73 with placebo. There was also a greater improvement at 52 weeks in the pre-bronchodilator FEV1 and a measure of quality of life. There were no meaningful differences in the frequency or types of adverse events. So the authors conclude that patients with severe uncontrolled asthma who received tezepelumab had fewer exacerbations, better lung function, and health-related quality of life than those who received placebo. So this is the trial that we've been awaiting since we published the smaller phase two trial of tezepelumab, which showed positive data. And I believe the tezepelumab will be approved for asthma. It's not a matter of whether it will be, it will happen. And when that happens, it'll be the first biologic that has a positive effect on blood eosinophil counts, the fraction of nitric oxide in exhaled air, and IgE levels. The other biologics that are out there in patients with asthma show differential effects on FENO, the fraction of nitric oxide in the exhaled air, and eosinophil counts. Anti-interleukin-5 treatment reduces blood eosinophil counts, but does not influence FENO levels, which suggests that a main glucocorticoid-sensitive pathway remains activated in patients receiving this treatment. On the other hand, biologics that block IL-4 or IL-13, namely dupilumab, reduce FENO levels, but don't impact the number of circulating eosinophils again leaving a key driver of inflammation untouched. Since TESEP does both these things and lowers IgE levels, the data suggests that this will be easier to use in that inflammatory endotyping of patients will be less important. That is to say, you can take a patient with severe asthma and not have to go through the sometimes laborious procedure of following their bloody eosinophil counts on many occasions or their FENO level before you assign them to a treatment category. And that's interesting to say that even though the tezepalumab worked in these patients, and I put work in quotes, when you look at the data by subgroups, the patients that had a TH2 high endotype did better on average than those without it, even though all groups showed some improvement. So it's not as if these phenotyping markers aren't important, it's they're less important in terms of the group behavior. If, as you predict, this agent is approved, how do you see it being used? So the other agents that have been out there, the anti-IL-5 and the anti-IL-4, IL-13, and anti-IL-5 receptors have now been out long enough that they have a very good safety record. We haven't had a lot of problems with these treatments. There are some, but people know about them. This is a new drug, and we don't have an established safety treatment record. I think we're going to need to wait until a drug can be given to larger numbers of people to see if safety events pop up. If that's the case, that safety events do not pop up, then you would be able to take a patient 
that had severe asthma and put them on tezepelumab and be reasonably certain that they would have an improvement, although those that had the TH2 high endotype would probably do better than those that did not. And I think this is telling us something else. Even though we've gone upstream, and I think that's where the advertising will be, go upstream, there are probably other ways to develop an asthmatic phenotype. Remember, the clinical definition of asthma is not based on a biochemical difference. It's based on a clinical difference. It's similar to headache or anemia. You can get it many different ways. And what this drug is telling us and the drugs we have out there is ways that are involved with a TH2 pathway at various levels are important. But there are other people with disease that we can identify as asthma that still have exacerbations. And we haven't worked on getting those under control. Are they due to air pollution? Are they due to other irritants? Are they due to mechanisms that we have yet to define? And we need to understand these other patients. Otherwise, they're going to be left without really good treatment for their severe disease. Thank you, Jeff and Darren, for joining us today. And as usual, thank you, Eric and Lindsay.